everyone. Welcome to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. My name is Ali Capurro, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode is a conversation with my friend, Rebecca Miller. Rebecca is a licensed marriage and family therapist and somatic experiencing practitioner in Golden Valley, Minnesota. She specializes in helping individuals, couples, and families work through trauma, relationship distress, and sexual concerns. She combines her genuine care for her clients with honesty, humor, and a belief that they have the strengths to overcome challenges. In Becca's work, she draws on personal experiences as a wife, a mother, and a twice-deployed veteran of the Army National Guard. She's also a pastor's daughter and a sister to three brothers. Becca also describes herself as a committed friend. Find your voice, be heard, be known. These words are her motto for personal growth. Becca shares that she has walked through her own struggles to find her voice and has learned how to use that voice in a way that allows herself to be heard in relationships. She has also experienced the joy of being known and accepted and seeks to help her clients experience that joy as well. I enjoyed my interview with Becca tremendously. Her knowledge of somatic experiencing and her understanding of relationships, attachment dynamics, and Terry Reel's relational life therapy were super helpful for me personally, and I'm excited to share the interview with you. So thanks for listening, and here's the interview with Becca. Hey, Becca. Welcome to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. It's, It's good to be here. I'm so glad you're here. I was laughing in my mind just now because I was thinking of what we were kind of planning to talk about. And then I was thinking of the tagline and I should, I feel like I should identify that, that you, yeah, you're a big piece of this podcast, whether you know it or not. And you are the tagline queen. I just, I'll just say that and just leave it for the listener to distinguish what that means. <laughs> discern. Discern. <laughs> It's really Thanks, good to Allie. see your face. You're welcome. <laughs> You're so welcome. I want to start right off the bat. I want to ask, so Becca, tell me a little bit about your practice, because I know you have a variety of specialties. And in addition to being an SEP, what do you do? Well, so my name is Rebecca Miller, and I have a private practice in Golden Valley, Minnesota, which is part of Minneapolis. And my specialties are trauma, relationship distress and sexual concerns and how all of those things interplay with each other and they interplay quite a lot i really love the work that i do and part of the reason i love the work that i do is that i think that sometimes when people think about getting help for their trauma they're just thinking about focusing on all the bad stuff from their past Mm. or past and present And when I get to work with people to kind of heal their trauma and heal their current relationships and also heal their sex and and like all the joy that you can have through relationships and sexual connection when your trauma is not kind of running the show of your life anymore, it's really joyful work. And that's one thing I really love about it. I love that you brought up that when trauma is not running your life and it creates an immediate question within me, 
When you see clients, and we're going to obviously do a little bit of generalizing here, but do they come in knowing that they have trauma or do you find that they come in? Because I was thinking sometimes me included, there was a time where I wouldn't have recognized that trauma was running my relationships or running the show in some way. I think that I have a percentage of people that come in because they know they have trauma or because their therapist recommended that they go uh, get their trauma treated with a somatic therapist. I have a lot of clients that don't recognize that they have trauma, but education is a huge part of my work with people early on. So Mm -hmm. I give them the definition of trauma as anything that is too much, too soon, too fast, that overwhelms the nervous system, Peter Levine's definition. And that whether we're doing individual therapy or couples work, we are building resilience for the nervous system to be able to kind of negotiate the fight, flight, and freeze response successfully. Mm. And then people get it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Do you do, so you do somatic experiencing, obviously. And then what are the other modalities that you're trained in that you like to incorporate with SE? Well, I do integral somatic psychology, uh, Raja Selvam's mm-hmm. model for emotional expansion. Mm-hmm. I'm not fully trained in that, but I'm in the training process for that. And uh, relational life therapy, Terry Real's relationship empowerment approach, which is really rewarding, both with individuals and couples. Partly, it is about learning how to manage your own like body whoosh in relationship, like my whole body in first consciousness has this like building whoosh of activation. And many of us will engage in our relationships out of that whoosh. And then we will say or do hurtful things or we will run away or we will shut down. And it teaches people how to observe that experience and actually calm the whoosh, take some breaths and move into second consciousness where you can use skills and show up differently with your partner. And then... You work on being able to ask the relational question, which is, uh, how can I help you, my partner, give me more of what I need? Mm. And if you're both asking that question, that also just exponentially improves your relationship dynamic because you're you're in a team approach to your dynamic as opposed to me versus you, anti-relational triggered space. You're the one that first turned me on to RLT. And I was stunned at the simplicity and complexity of it. And it's really direct, I I felt like. And then it also has a lot to it in depth, maybe. And even the first consciousness, second consciousness, I'm kind of like, oh, what is that? I don't think I've heard those terms. So maybe if you could explain those two things for clarity and then talk about the whoosh and somatic experiencing. I would love to hear more about that. So I think maybe what I'll first do is share something that I share with all clients, which is that basically, you know, we have... Like if we think about our whole being, part of us is a conscious self. Like what I think I know about myself, what my personal values are, how I want to be and show up in the world. And then part of us is an unconscious automatic body response. Mm-hmm. which is kind of in different situations. I feel tight. I feel heavy. I feel weighed down. I feel shaky. I have spinning thoughts. I can't get words out. And so often when we're in our conscious self saying, I say what I don't want to say, and I do what I don't want to do, 
uh, or I don't say what I want to say and I don't do what I want to do. Ooh, talk about uh, that for a second. Explain that. Cause I think that's huge. Oh yeah. Well, then there is something happening in the automatic body response that's keeping us stuck. Yes. So for instance, so like in the fight, flight, or freeze response and that automatic body response, if for instance, I am in therapy talking to a traditional talk therapist that doesn't work with the body. And I say, I know I need to tell my partner whatever X thing. And, but I don't know why I can't. Right. And then often in traditional talk therapy, you'll use cognitive strategies to be like, well, let's talk about why you can, and let's talk about how to do it. And let's try to pump you up to get you motivated. And what I will do is say, okay, so as you think about saying that to your partner, let's notice what you're Mm -hmm. feeling in your body. Mm -hmm. And then they will feel tight or constricted or stuck, or they'll have a lot of constriction in their voice. And then we'll use strategies of self-contact or kind of guidance of attention, allow it to bring us to content of meaning or image or Mm -hmm. emotion. And then very quickly, they feel better. And then we go back to the the idea of saying the thing that they needed to say, and then they feel like they can. Wow. And so that's working with some of the stuckness that just happens in that automatic body response. Or on the other side, there are people that they rage at their partner. Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't want to be a person who rages. That's not in my integrity. That's not who I want to be. And then also when they do this, I completely lose my mind and I say really hurtful things. And then I hate myself after. Mm, And so what we work with is really how to recognize building activation. Because a lot of times people who rage didn't start there. They had a lot of little things build up that they didn't address, that they didn't repair along the way. And And then they blow. We work with how to protect their partner from that response while holding compassion for the fact that this is an automatic body response and their reptilian brain has taken over and they are reacting to their partner as if they're the tiger trying to eat them. Uh, (laughs) And then, and then we also work with the shame that comes on, on the other side of it, which is the shame gets stuck and it still makes it about me and my pain. I feel so shameful that I hurt (sighs) you, but it's about me, not you. Right. And so in a relational life therapy with a somatic lens, we help people come out of like power over grandiose, shameless responses And we also help people come out of this one down, disempowered, shameful response into a place of mutual compassion, right? And I can hold myself in a warm regard as a messy human while also having healthy regret or healthy guilt or healthy shame, right? But it's about you and the the pain I caused you. It's not about how bad I feel about me for causing you pain, right? It's so um, meaningful to me to hear this personally, professionally, all the ways. I really love the the lack of or the kind of rebellion of shame. Like shame, you don't belong anywhere in here. You don't belong mm-hmm. in attack toward my partner. Yeah. Nor do you belong toward myself. And that feels mm-hmm. that in itself feels like a miraculous sort of conceptualization and then also work, meaning the um, implementation. Let's see the whoosh. I just did the so, whoosh this yeah. like so, five times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the body whoosh really is that automatic, non-conscious stress response, which is part of our survival. Yeah. We need it. Right. If a car is about to come at us, 
are about to hit us, we jump out of the way, right? Automatically, the reptilian brain takes over and hijacks the thinking brain. Then my conscious self comes back online and goes like, oh my gosh, I almost got hit by a car. But the problem is that as the research has shown in brain scans, that in our relationships, our reptilian brain doesn't differentiate between a physical threat and emotional threat. So when my partner's upset with me, it's going to activate my stress physiology, fight, flight, and freeze. And so one of the things that happens, like, and one of the reasons why educating about this when I work with individuals or couples especially is so important is that we stop actually taking it personally that this happens, right? If I go in a fight, I'm going to like naturally want to rage or say really hurtful things. I'm going to talk really fast all around you. If I go in a flight, I'm going to walk away like leave me alone. And if I go in a freeze, I'm going to shut down and I'm not going to be able to get words out. And then a lot of times a fight response uh, partner is going to take offense to that. What's wrong with you? Like, why are you just dismissing me? Why won't you talk to me? Right. And so we change the whole understanding about it Absolutely. by recognizing that fight, flight and freeze is a natural part of all of us. And we have to learn how to protect our partners from our stress response. Mm. So that is the body whoosh, right? It mm. just is the automatic body response to an emotional or physical threat that we are perceiving as threat. Yeah, right. And and like you said, not necessarily in our prefrontal smart thinking cortex brain, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. happening in this deep automatic or autonomic place. That reminds me, I've seen a quote, I think it's from Gabor Mate about authenticity and attachment. I'll have to look it up specifically to post it in the show notes. But basically, if you have a choice between authenticity and attachment, if you have to make that choice, you're going to choose attachment every time. And I, it kind of relates to me to like the, and not choose consciously, but like into the um, uh, obviously attachment research, but also fawning. Like, do you, do you bring fawning into your practice with the survival physiology? I don't talk about fawning as much. I am more likely to talk about it with a client who has a lot of shame mm, yes. about a big freeze response in response to their trauma. Yes. And I think I don't talk about it as much because in general, just talking about freeze, freeze with social engagement system online, I can talk, but I'm constricted. Freeze with it offline, I cannot talk. Freeze collapse. You know, I am shutting down, going into a death place, feeling like I'm not alive or dead. Those are the frames that I usually use only because fawning is helpful, but also another level of like another lens for people to bring on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it it is, you know, it is helpful and it's very helpful for people to understand. I do bring in sometimes um, the appeasement strategy or appeasement survival strategy, recognizing that for many of us being with um, abusive parents, partner, you know, in situations where if we stood up for ourselves, it would be life-threatening. Yes. uh, Yes. Or like physically threatening that we learn how to kind of be a little bit like... um, I don't know, a dog looking up, head down, right? And I'm doing everything I can to manage your emotions for you and to keep you happy and to kind of pet and soothe your, you know, your emotional reaction to keep myself safe. Because a lot of times people that have been 
in an appeasement strategy. Of course, it's also automatic. It's not a choice, but they have a lot of shame about it after the fact. Like, why did I do that? Why didn't I stand up? Why didn't I leave? Why didn't I tell them off? You know, and recognizing that they couldn't. And that was the wisdom of their nervous system taking care of them. I love that you brought that up because it is something I come across kind kind of frequently, actually. Mm -hmm. And what I find also fascinating about that is that it can say a specific trauma event happened at a young age, two, three, four, really little. I've noticed sometimes people will still have that shame response for not doing something more at those young ages, which is Mm -hmm. just mind blowing. And again, you know, it's, it's that rational brain going, I know I couldn't have done something, but then sort of the felt, I don't know if I should actually use that word. I was going to say the felt sense of, we'll use it for now, but yeah, the felt sense of (laughs) I should have done something different. Yes. Yeah. Not realizing it was thwarted basically, I guess. Yeah. That, that should have done something different is actually part of their child adaptation to how they survived. So in uh, relational life therapy, we, we do inner child work in the Mm -hmm. presence of the partner. And I will also do this individually, but there is the frame of the wounded child part, the part that didn't get what we needed, wasn't protected. And then there's the adaptive child part, which is how I adapted to survive. And then there's the wise adult part, which we're growing, you know, the conscious self, like how do I want to be and show up in the world in the present? But that adaptive child part is like a, it's like an angry adolescent who hates the vulnerability of the wounded child part. And a lot of times, a lot of times that's where that, like, what's wrong with that weak part and why didn't it do the thing? You know, the work that we have to do is to, is to really help work with that adaptive child learning of how I survived the world to partly to, by hating their vulnerable self in order to allow them to kind of come into the present and be able to hold compassion. I love, love everything you're saying, especially when I think of the somatic piece of, it made me actually curious, do you ever see patterns or themes in individuals in the body? Like what you see or how you work with that in the body, if you can respond to that without more information? How do I work with what in the body? There was something about... Um, oh, adaptive child and when the child parts? Yes. And how you described how much that adaptive child, <laughs> how the adaptive child feels about the wounded child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I have tried to um, do inner child work with the wounded child part before working with the adaptive child part. And it does not work. Because the adaptive child part is like, yeah, that stupid weak kid. <laughs> it's like, okay. Because the idea is, you know, bringing their wise adult self to go back and to, you know, speak to that child part and say the things that child needs to hear. And with the wounded child part, it's, you know, either putting them behind you where, where uh, they'll be safe and you'll take the blast. But with the adaptive child part, it is, you get to be a kid. Uh, thank you for everything you've done to help me survive. And I'm going to demote you now because I can do it better. And I'm going to put you behind me where you're safe and I will take the blast. And the 
adaptive child part is generally the part that's running the show in your life that's causing problems in your intimate relationships and with your kids and all of that. It's like an, a child in adult clothing oh, trying God. to act big. And there's so much activation within the body and within that that part in allowing something different to happen and trusting that they can like we can keep ourselves safe right because there was a lot of wisdom in that adaptation absolutely and i i feel like that needs to be um emphasized because that yes. gets missed a lot in our culture like the wisdom of the adaptation yeah yeah so if you were working with me mm-hmm. the joke is I try to include this in every podcast interview. The joke is I'm really just getting my own therapy through these interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. But if you were working with someone or me asking for a friend, would you, I'm wondering how you would get that, maybe either the, let's say the adaptive child, how you would get a little contact in the body when you're working with someone who's, I totally misbehaved this weekend and I overreacted with one of my daughters and everyone's fine and we did repair, but it was totally that the kid in me Mm -hmm. responding to the kid in them. (laughs) Yeah. So if you had come into my office and said, I did this thing, I feel so bad, we would potentially go like, okay, well, where did you learn to function that way yes and and uh when did that and how about how old do you feel when you think about it Mm. and then like notice in the body where you're feeling that and then bring up the image of that younger version of yourself right and then and then we're in the inner child work which is you know inviting you to sit invite that younger part to sit in a chair in front of you and then talk to that part and thank her and then Uh, As we do the work, then the work going forward after that session is to practice being relational with the younger parts of you, Mm. which is noticing that the wish comes in and then soothing that part. Hey, I've got you. I've got this. It's kind of like parenting those automatic child responses. Because of course, when we think about it, well, parenting is hard enough if we're in our wise adult self, but if we're in a child (laughs) self, like how in the world are we supposed to handle (laughs) what our kids are throwing at us, you know? Oh my goodness. <laughs> totally. It's so true. I just want to scream back at them. <laughs> exactly. That's basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically it. That's awesome. Okay. So identifying that whoosh, it's it sounds really lovely. And then I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I'll be, I'll be so great at this. It comes fast. I can even just think of the situation and I can feel my arms getting some energy and I can feel my legs are like, we're going to run or fight. I don't know which, but we're ready. Well, so what's interesting with that is sometimes, so there's the inner child work piece, but right now, if you were feeling all that charge, I might consider that there is a completion of defensive response that wants to happen. Yes. right. Right. And even, so when we think about what our reptilian brain automatic body responses need and want to do, what our conscious self and personal values, like wise adult self wants to do. So sometimes it might be discharging that energy in the present. Like as you think about that situation, you know, what would it be like to notice where you're feeling that activation in your body and see what your body wants to do? And sometimes it might be pushing or punching or like saying words that you would never want to say. 
And also sometimes it might be, let's notice where you're feeling that and float back to other times you felt that way. Right. right. And then move to where that early child adaptation got learned in your body response and then complete defensive responses there and then come back in the present and you would probably not feel that re-experiencing activation anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I noticed while you were describing that, my system took a deeper breath and slow down a little bit, just feeling that containment of you um, very much understanding and very much being able to put words to this experience and not shame me. Mm-hmm. It's I, I love the power of all of those pieces. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, and one thing yeah. I just want to say about that, really the, the stance that I practice is a stance of mutual compassion. And uh, that I'm a fellow traveler, right? I'm a messy human and I'm, I'm working and learning and growing and moving toward healing. And when we stand in mutual compassion, we're not in our automatic body response, right? We are in a relational space. And so really mutual compassion is that second consciousness. The first consciousness is the body wash, automatic. Okay. You know, it comes from our feet all the way up in Mm. our activation. And then we say and do the hurtful things we say and do, whether that's yell, whether that's run away, whether that's freeze, right? right? right. You know, our system gets into that stress physiology. And then when we learn how to self-regulate sometimes that's by taking a break like healthy timeout strategy is something i teach to every single couple (laughs) Uh, or i can stop and take five deep breaths and then i can move into second consciousness which is while connecting with my thinking brain and my relational brain I can use skills and strategies to communicate to you in a way that will be more likely to give me what I need. Mm-hmm. Because if I just like blast on to you, right. you're not going to give me what I need. You're going to react because right. that's what happens when nervous systems trigger each other. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is also, by the way, one of the things that's so hard about parenting because our kids, their uh, reptilian brain is even more in charge than ours as adults. Right. And all the different, you got, you have a toddler land of reptilian brain tantrums, and then you have hormonal adolescence kind of tantrums. And then what that does is it triggers our automatic reptilian brain responses. And then, you know, we have two anti-relational brain spaces duking it out. <laughs> I will never forget the word you just use, anti-relational. That is... Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's me versus you. It's self-preservation. Totally. It's survival. It's black yep. and white. It's I'm right, you're wrong. Yep. It is the reason why I will always have a job as a couple therapist. <laughs> it's uh life work. I love and I'm a fellow traveler. My fellow yeah. traveler, thank you for traveling <laughs> this <Yes>. with me. <laughs> yes. Oh, I can't decide. It makes a little bit of sense to me to talk about relational or relationship empowerment. We've probably already been doing that to a degree, but if there's anything more you want to say specifically to that and how you work with that and with the somatic lens, somatic experiencing lens. Well, so I think that with relationship empowerment work, we are generally, the work in, involves helping people either come out of a power over stance. Yes. Where I am kind of running over you and only my needs and feelings matter or a disempowered stance. I am less than, 
right? I am less than you. I am looking up at you and you're in charge. Mm. And so the one down, less than disempowered stance is more shame-based. I'm bad. It's all my fault. When you treat me badly, I ask myself, what's wrong with me? Why did I, what did I do to make you treat me badly? Mm-hmm. Right. And, ha- mm. and in general, you know, that's either going to cause me to be in this really anxious, uh, scanning for threat to relationship. How can I manage your emotions state or in a walled off kind of shut down, freeze, depressed energy state. And so, you know, the work of people that get triggered into like one down and less done stances is to help them come out of freeze. Mm-hmm. So in general, I have a lot of activation in my system and I'm stuck and I can't say words and I, and, and then teach them really concretely after we help with the self-regulation and to come out of the activation that keeps them stuck on the inside. And in general, people that have that, that one down disempowered stance, when we think about mutual compassion, they have too much compassion for other and not enough for themselves. Right. And we're not trying to decrease compassion for other. It is just holding compassion for myself too, and my pain and my needs and my suffering. Mm-hmm. And then for people that take a power over stance, it is actually helping them learn how to come out of their fight or flight response. Right. Because in general, you can have a boundaryless fight response. Like I rage at you. I control you. I tell you what you have to do, what you should do. Or you can have a walled off and better than stance, which is like angry flight response. Like, Oh, I don't like you. Like, and I'm communicating my hostility with my silence. And by looking down my nose at you, right. It's anti-relational in a silent way. And it's very activating. And so they throw contempt at their partner. Like I, I contempt, I have contempt for you. Uh, So we have to work on discharging some of the fight and flight response and then helping them step down into a place of mutual compassion, right? I can hold compassion for me and my feelings and you at the same time, more compassion for the other. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. I just am so moved by the hopefulness and possibility with this work because these are, you know, I... (laughs) I can think oh, professionally, but personally, it's just really resonating with with such a desire for better relationships mm-hmm. and, and knowing that there is a way that we can yes. connect better, more um, deeply, more satisfying. Yeah, gosh. Well, and the frame of what is health, you know, is, you know, all relationships go through cycles of harmony right? We really like each other. Rupture, which is like, oh, I do not like you. Or you hurt me. Let me down. I see the worst parts of you right now. And then repair is the process of coming out of rupture. I feel hurt and understood. And so do you. We apologize for our part. Back into reconnection and harmony. And what we don't realize is that that whole process of harmony, rupture, repair over and over again, builds trust, safety, connection, and vulnerability in our relationships. And we get more and more of what we need. But what, what happens for many, many, many of us, especially because of what we know about that automatic reptilian brain response (laughs) is we get stuck in rupture and in rupture, we're either in fight, flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. And that is Mm anti-relational. Uh, and it kills our relationships and it also is bad for us. Yeah, you know, it's terrible. To be stuck in that. Yeah. 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 It feels it feels like shit. I'll just yes. say. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> yes. I'll put that out there. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Oh. So during our pre-call, one of the things you also mentioned was 
that you really enjoyed the counter vortex trauma vortex framework. And I was, I wanted to ask how that fits in with what we're talking about or anything else that fits with that framework that you wanted to mention. Well, so I like the somatic experiencing the lens of the trauma vortex and the counter vortex. And I'll talk to clients about the trauma vortex is like a big tornado that pulls us in to what's hard and bad and terrible and awful and overwhelming. And, you know, and also I just want to name that the pandemic has been a giant tornado trauma vortex that every single one of us humans has been in and coping with while also coping with normal life stuff, like our health things and our stressors and all of that. So it's really been impacting to many of us, like our capacity is less, you know, we've just been faced with so much. So then we've got your counter vortex, like, which is kind of, if you pendulate over into what brings me toward life, energy, joy, happiness, connection, pleasure, and fun. And many, many, many of us will just go into the trauma vortex and then get sucked in and then go in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And now I'm just stuck. So I kind of see so my lens is like, oh, I see them going into the trauma vortex. And then I'm just going to reach out and grab your hand and like Aww. invite you over to the counter vortex. Right. And then we go, and then they go back. Right. Our, so our systems can get stuck there. And then we, you know, we're, we're helping support the nervous system and moving between those states of more activated to more settled. And in the counter vortex is relational joy, is the joy of healthy sexual connection, you know, where we have enthusiastic consent and we're able to say what we like, what we want, what we don't like, what we don't want, Mm. right? And in the counter vortex is living after trauma, right? And not saying that we uh, stop experiencing stress response and all of that. But in the counter vortex, like I can see what I've been through and not feel it every moment. Yes. And as I've done the healing work around my trauma, which is also almost, it's always also going to be relational trauma. Always, from what I understand. (laughs) When people were there or didn't up or overtly hurt me or whatever, right? When I'm not living in that anymore, now I can go toward healthier relationships and and live in a place of more joy. And that means that, yep, I have trauma vortex. It's going to bring, you know, life is hard, right? There's hard things. And I can learn how to move into that counter vortex. And so that is what makes it so rewarding to do the work. I don't feel like I'm working with problems all day. In fact, some people will be like, how can you listen to people's problems all day? And I'm like, actually, instead of feeling helpless about the trauma vortex of the world, I get to help people connect with life, energy, joy, happiness, connection, pleasure, and fun and nervous system resilience. And when they come a couple sessions in and they're like, oh, I use that, you know, grounding and orienting and self-contact strategy. And I felt better Yeah, and I felt way more present. And, and I just, I sell it a lot with clients and that's one of the reasons I do the work and have resilience for it. Yes, exactly. Resiliency is, I, I actually love and didn't know this, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe the idea of resiliency being something that could be developed like a muscle, which is Uh so silly to even think, but I just, I guess I felt like we are who we are. And 
somatic experiencing has been the vehicle that's really transformed that for me. A lot of other modalities have supported that and spiritual you know, pursuits, but even that counter vortex, trauma vortex, the simplicity of that helps for me. And I see clients work with identifying, oh, I'm in the trauma vortex right now. Mm-hmm. I know that are, there are things that I can do to get out of it. It's like mm-hmm. something that <laughs> feels like a miracle. What? I can do that? You said... What did I want to bring back up into this within the counter vortex, trauma vortex? Oh, I think I was thinking of survival physiology. And I was thinking that so many of us, and I want to be careful of making too big of a generalization, but when we're in survival physiology or we've been in it for a really long time, you kind of mentioned the beyond trauma concept like what it's like to actually live when we can vacillate between counter and trauma vortex. And that's where the living is because we're never going to get rid of the hard things. And that's where um, there's this quote by uh, John Bowlby, an attachment, early attachment researcher, founder of it with Mary Ainsworth. His quote is, uh, we will chase our attachment wounds for the rest of our life. healing looks like becoming an accurate reporter of our experience yes and what i see as part of the gift of se is that we learn how to observe our trigger yes so i can now in a different way with my conscious brain see inside myself oh that's my attachment trigger right now Mm -hmm. and i can feel it but i know it's not true in this in the way it used to be yeah right Whereas if I'm in a full-blown anxious attachment trigger, I'm in a desperate, without you, I die, right? Or a full-blown avoidant trigger, I'm in a intrusion, alert, run away, run away. Right. right? Danger uh, either way, no. major danger. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And uh, Or if I'm in a disorganized attachment trigger, it's like, it's not safe to be close and else I want to be. Ah, yeah. what do I do? There's no right move. You yeah. know, and and recognizing that all like all of those things are so, so painful and hard to tolerate. And as we also move through that the healing journey, it's not that we never get triggered again. It's that we recognize it. Yeah. We observe it and we know how to support ourselves through it. Yes. So that we come back into that wise adult self and are able to live in the now and live connected with the counter vortex in the midst of the trauma vortex. Yeah, right. Well, you have taught me about 20 things already today. (laughs) And I want to be aware of our time. So I wanted to bring in one last piece, if that's okay, about um, some of the work with you do, particularly, you said you work with individuals and couples, but also I know that you're a veteran. And I was wondering how that informs or influences your practice or you. I think that I am very, very comfortable within the rules of masculine culture. I understand the the rules internalized and taught are don't be weak, don't be vulnerable. And also understanding that what that does to us and women internalize those rules as well. Uh, don't be weak, don't be vulnerable, like wall off, push through. I'm okay. What that does is it causes us to live in a state of disconnection 
and when we live in a state of disconnection, we can function without joy, right? I think that for me, I grew up with a very much masculine culture following dad and three brothers <laughs> and, you know, hunter fishing, all of that. Uh, I also learned how to wrestle and fight and, you know, punch them. I use my voice, lots of access to my fight response my whole life. But I also realized I used to call myself a failed tomboy because I also liked girly things. And I didn't realize until later that I had internalized these views of like masculine was better Mm. and guy things were better. So anyway, I, but I also learned how to swim in the culture. And then I ended up joining the military and uh, served for nine years, was deployed a couple of times. So I just am very comfortable working with men and understanding kind of a lot of those rules that men just learn to live by that also cause them harm personally and relationally. Mm. Because of course, in general, when you have a heterosexual couple come in, the complaint from the woman is, I want more intimacy and connection. And the complaint from the man is, she's unhappy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm fine. Mm -hmm. Can you just make her happy? And so I think that working in a really solution-focused, concrete, research-based way Mm -hmm. works well as I'm working with people on building resilience. So I do think that with somatic experiencing, many SCPs kind of hold a lot of what we all lovingly call woo-woo. Yes. (laughs) Which which is really not, that is not totally how I'm wired. Although I love all of y'all who are that way. And for me, I think that I work well with people that they need the benefits of somatic work without the woo-woo, which which in general, I think tends to communicate more of what would be part of feminine culture, yeah, right? And true. again, the fact that things are divided into feminine or masculine culture is uh, unfortunate. And also it just is, mm-hmm. you know? Right, and and right. so I, I do think that that is one of the things that I find really rewarding though about my work with men. And I've talked to other therapists that have some specialty with men is that In general, when you work with women, which I also enjoy working with women, but when you work with women, they have shared their stories with many, many people like friends and they have a lot of relationships along the the way that they tend to share because part of what is taught within feminine culture is relationality. And when I work with men, a lot of times they have shared their stories and experiences with no one ever. And so it is really honoring and Mm. sacred work. And also with that little bit of education and support around how to show up in a more relational way, they can and they do. And they're Mm. like, this feels so much better. And so anyway, it's just one more way that the reward comes into my work. But as far as like being a veteran, I don't know what else you want to know about that. I think it's just Um, an interesting piece of your (laughs) wisdom and body of knowledge. Yeah your actual physical body and your... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do enjoy... I did enjoy combatives. I did get tased. I did get sprayed with pepper spray and run an obstacle course. And, you know, the shared misery of being in the military is a really amazingly hilarious thing. (laughs) It's, It's like we all went through this terrible, hard 
time of our eyes burning for days Ugh. and we laughed about it and then we watched watch each other like get tased and took videos and then laugh for hours and then we come back and then we come back from our training and then we show videos of being tased and we're laughing and everyone else is like cringing seriously <laughs> um by the way i have i have not seen your tase video <laughs> will you laugh or will you cringe? <laughs> <laughs> I I have the kid that roped the cat. So, you know, odds are good. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. Actually, it might hurt, hurt me to see you suffer. I don't know. We'll see. I'm yeah. willing to try it out though. <laughs> well, if I can find my video, I'll let you watch it. <laughs> okay. Together. When we're together next time. Yes. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> so if we were to wrap up... <laughs> the question that I usually ask at the beginning, how did is how did you find SE? Can I throw that end here at the end? Yeah. Well, so I found SE with a lot of skepticism. So basically I went to my first therapy experience for myself in the client position when I was old and she was doing some major torture on me. And I was just losing my temper way too easily. Mm. And I was like, okay, I do not want to be this way. I need to go get help. So I did. And EMDR was super helpful for me at that time. But a number of years later, I started to hear about somatic experiencing, partly with a, with a client that I was working with who had a lot of medical trauma. Mm. And so I started to kind of like pay a little bit of attention, but no one could explain it to me in a way that made sense. Yes. Uh, which is actually part of the reason why I think that I really value the education piece of uh, how I work around this because I really need it to make sense to me. So what I decided to do was sign up for the first module of somatic experiencing training to go figure out what it is. And uh, then I did a demo with Abby Blakesley. She mm -hmm. was uh, worked with me that first module. And I'm pretty sure that's the reason I continued the work because... Mm -hmm. What she did in that session, after the session, I felt more present and more calm with mm -hmm. my family. And mm -hmm. it just felt really different. And I realized, you know, later in my SE journey that because my, my nervous system is pretty defended against feeling emotions mm -hmm. and sensations, which is also often part of masculine culture, that a lot of people didn't really know how to work with me very well when we were in the learning and they were practicing SE with me. So it was really good that I got to work with a very skilled practitioner. Oh, yeah. So that I could experience the benefit of it versus the weird, confusing, frustrating parts sure. of the sure. early work when people were like, what's happening with Rebecca's nervous system? I don't know. Where did, <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> so anyway, that's how I found it. And then as I started to do the practice and combine somatic experiencing with relational life therapy, everybody started to get better so much faster. Oh, and also I started to feel like my job was even less work. Like, and it was just like, I, I didn't have to try so hard. It was, especially when you think about when you're just working from a talk therapy lens, it's like all that automatic stuff is just happening. And they're like, I can't, I can't say the thing. It's like, well, why not? <laughs> Let me help you figure it out if you can. You know, and obviously talk therapy and and I was trained in EMDR as well. Those things were still helpful and they were still helping people learn and grow, but just not in the same way and not as fast mm -hmm. and not 
in as pinpointed of a way, when we, you know, pay attention to what the body is doing, then you have conscious self and body integration. And it's just really exciting and rewarding. And that's why I do the work and I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Seeing progress is so magical in the sense Mm -hmm. of heartwarming and hopeful again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite things lately? The kind of counter vortexy, either music or books or TV shows, movies. What are you doing with your free time, free moments that inspires you lately? Well, so first of all, let me just acknowledge that I have an almost 10-year-old and a six-year-old going on three. Uh, So I am not in a stage of life enjoyment and joy all the time. I I am in a life stage of exhaustion and giving a lot of energy all the time. However... Yeah, even more importantly... Tell us, yeah. Somebody somebody asked me, they're like, what do you do for fun? And where do you go out to eat? And I'm like, oh, I don't have fun. I think a client (laughs) asked me that. I was like, I'm in the life, I'm in the life stage of young kids. I mean, I have fun with them, but like, do I go out sometimes, but not often? And you know, half the restaurants I used to go to before my kids were born uh, are all closed now. But anyway, so with that, I have had to learn how to connect with and practice, you know, counter vortex in my life in the ways that are possible. And A significant way for me is um, every night I do 30 minutes of yoga with very calm music. And the yoga helps me move emotions through my body. So in my work, in my day, sometimes I cry during it. Sometimes I have thoughts about clients or life. You know, I've had a number of losses the last uh, couple months. Mm. It has just been a way for me to really kind of hold space for myself. Mm. And... uh, uh, Ludovico Anabi mm. is probably my favorite composer. Mm. Uh, piano really, really speaks to me and soothes me and helps me. Being out in nature, yeah, working out like the normal thing. But it feels like a time in my life where it felt more like I should work out. And now I, it's like I want to. I want to. It feels good. Moving my body feels good. And also playing with my kids. Not all the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you, you want to play? Okay, I will. I'm going to try. You want to play Legos some more? Okay. <laughs> but um, but when we can like connect and be present with playfulness or you know playing experiences, it's really fun. Oh, and I can't forget that part of my counter vortex is actually traveling to do assisting for somatic experience and training, yeah. which yeah. is actually getting away from the everyday family yeah. stress and job and being with other awesome people like you, Allie. Mm-hmm, so glad like we get you. to exist together. Yes. And learn. Learning is a huge, huge kind of vortex for me. So yeah. I always have more books than I can read or get to. <laughs> and uh, my joke is that I, you know, my tagline could be Becca, the person who starts books. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will tell you this. I think that any when someone writes any book that makes me want to read it all the way through, they've done a really impressive job. Right. Because I'm like, okay, if your book can be a pamphlet or if it needs to be one or two chapters and then you start to repeat yourself, then it shouldn't be a book. (laughs) 
<laughs> if I ever write a book, I'm going to have you edit it. <laughs> if your book could be a pamphlet. <laughs> okay, so what's a book you've started recently? <laughs> well, I, I have pre-ordered Terry like. Rail's new book. Me I too. pre-ordered Terry Rail's new book, Us. And <laughs> let's see. Oh, I recently started Raja Salvam's book, um, ISP, but I probably got, you know, five sentences in. <laughs> so I don't even know. They can barely count. You're learning it though. You're in the training for it. So, you know, you well, probably don't need to read it like I do. I think I just am like, you know, in general, the kind of books that I really like to read are, are books that are written for non-therapists. So written to the public. it's so much better it's so much more interesting books written to therapists is they're just dry and but in general like I kind of think that I don't tend to recommend a lot of books to clients except for sex therapy books because we have so many well not sex therapy books but like healthy sex positive sex uh, views and understandings we have so many distorted messages and myths about sex in our in our culture that without giving ourselves a whole lot more healthy information, we just can barely get out of all that dysfunction. Yeah. Uh, but aside from that, I really am about, hey, here's a handout. It's one sheet. Let's talk about it. Here's a handout. Here's another <laughs> one. Don't read a book. Have a handout. Have a, have a handout. <laughs> if you really want to read a book, I will recommend one for you. Well, so, since we do have kind yeah. of this expert, <laughs> this resident expert here, What's one of your favorite healthy sex books for our listeners? Uh, and uh, me? Come as you come as you are by Emily Nagoski. Okay, I've got it written down. It is. Uh, it talks about the ways people experience sexual desire. It is focused on women, but it is absolutely true that men and women experience uh, a type of desire for sex that that um, they don't know about and in general it makes them think that something's wrong with them mm-hmm. and a little bit of education about it yes. really shifts and changes how people view how they experience desire for sex yes awareness right it's such a big it's mm-hmm. essential good oh thanks Okay. It has been more than a pleasure to have you on, good friend, and to see your face. So thank you so, so, so much. And thank you for having me. And what you're doing is beautiful and amazing. And and I really appreciate it. I will simply say thank you because I've already deflected a few compliments from you today. I'm at my capacity for deflection. You're welcome. And yay for not deflecting. Yay. (laughs) Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Becca. You can find her website at wellnesscounselingmn.com. For more information about somatic experiencing, you can go to traumahealing.org. And the Sneaky Powerful website is sneakypowerful.com. We'd love it if you left a review or put some stars on your podcast app. Thanks for listening and see you next time.